Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We are talking about foundations of the faith versus cults and world religions. And we've talked a lot about Mormonism and Catholicism and Jehovah's Witness and Buddhism and Hinduism and, and Islam. But what I want us to do, this, I'm, we're going to actually do a little bit of exposition over the next couple of weeks. What I want us to do is I want us to walk through the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 8, and see what Romans, the Romans road, if you will, what it has to say about salvation. Because I can think of no other book to go to that really lays out the foundations of the gospel, the foundations of salvation. So we're not going to go verse by verse through Romans 1 through 8, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to, come on in, I'm going to, um, I don't know how many of these are numbered. I just kept numbering them. You can call them numbers or you can call them, what I would call them gospel declarations or gospel statements or statements about salvation. Um, I just kind of, what I did was I, I kind of traced through Paul's, main teachings in the book of Romans to, to lay out for us what are the essentials of salvation? What are the foundational beliefs about salvation, about the gospel? And so here's number one. Number one, and it's how the gospel or how the book of Romans starts. Here's number one. God does everything for His glory alone including the salvation of sinners. It starts with God's glory. Everything starts with God's glory. So let's look at how the book of Romans starts. Romans chapter 1. This is the longest of Paul's letters. It's considered his like magnum opus, if you will, or his you know, masterpiece. Um, so let's, let's pick up in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and let's see how Paul starts this masterful book on the gospel. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of his holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Wow, what an introduction. He basically lays forth the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ as prophesied in the scriptures. But what does he say at the end of verse 5? What's this all pointing towards? Faith for what? The sake of his name among all the nations. What's the whole purpose for God doing this, sending Jesus, dying on the cross? It's for the sake of God's name, His glory, His fame among the nations. In, in, in other words, that the entire world would worship and glorify God. So God does everything for His glory alone. So it starts there. Before we even get to salvation, it starts with God and God's glory. So let's look at Isaiah 42, 6-8. This is God speaking. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. 
I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring up the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, we're probably familiar with verse 8, right? I am the Lord, that's my name, my glory I give to no other. But what's this in the context of? God bringing salvation to the nations to open the eyes of the blind, to bring prisoners out of a dungeon, to those who sit in darkness. This is those that are in sin, those that are in captivity to sin. God is going to release through Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy and God does it all for the glory of His name. Isaiah 43, 10-11, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So we start out talking about the gospel, talking about our salvation, with the truth that God does everything for His glory alone. Okay? Now, let's go to number two. There may be 20 of these. I don't know how. I just kept numbering them, so... We're going to go probably two or three. This is not going to, we're not going to end tonight. I gave Trina my notes and she's like, you want me to do all? i like, no, no. We may get like five pages in. I think I've got like 20 pages of notes. But I just kept going, figuring we'll go as long as we, we go. Number two, because I like Romans. Number two, the one true gospel has the amazing power to save. This, I think, is Paul's thesis statement of the entire book of Romans. It's in Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul is not ashamed of this gospel because it's the good news of salvation and the power of salvation to everyone who believes. So it brings up a good point. What's the gospel? What's the word gospel mean? Good news. About what? Just good news? Okay. It's, you guys are all saying it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. I think it's on your sheet. This is, I'm going to give you two gospel in a nutshell passages, okay? So 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 is a, what I call a gospel in the nutshell. It, it basically succinctly tells us what the gospel is. Paul says it's the most important thing that he received and the most important thing he's delivering to us. So 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news. I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. So what did Paul receive? And what is he delivering? He's delivering to them the gospel. And what is it? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the nutshell here is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. The good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Now, Galatians 1, 3 through 5, I think Pastor Andrew preached on this while I was gone. Um, but I think this is another gospel in a nutshell passage of Scripture. 
It's how the book of Galatians begins. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So if we combine these two verses together, 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians chapter 1, here's, I think, a succinct definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God's sovereign plan to bring Himself glory through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to rescue helpless sinners from sin and God's judgment. Okay, let's just break this definition down, okay? Let's, let's break down the parts of this definition. Number one, the gospel is good news. It's not advice that you take or leave. It's an announcement. It's good news that's to be announced. It, it, it's something that happened in history. Number two, it's also part of God's sovereign plan. In that Galatians passage, notice it says there, this, it's according to the will of our God and Father. It's, it's God's will. It's God's plan. It's been God's sovereign plan from eternity past to bring about salvation of sinners through the death of Jesus. Also, it's to bring Himself glory. That's where we started. What does that Galatians passage say? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans 1 Um, five for the sake of his name among all the nations. So it's God-centered. It's God's sovereign plan. It's good news. But it's also about the historical Jesus. It's about the literal death of Jesus, the literal burial of Jesus, the literal resurrection of Jesus, the, the, the fact that Jesus was a historical person. This took place in history and that he rose again and he's alive today. He's ruling and reigning And the gospel also addresses humanity's deepest need. What do we need to be rescued from? Sin and judgment. And we're helpless. I mean, this is simple stuff, but is this not the greatest news that we need to hear and the world needs to know? Okay? The gospel is the good news of God's sovereign plan to bring Himself glory through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to rescue helpless sinners from sin and God's judgment. Okay, so that's really what the gospel is. And so the rest of the book of Romans really unpacks it for us, unpacks it in great detail. So let's look at number three, gospel declaration number three. There is no such thing as an atheist. (laughs) All people know there is a creator, but they suppress that truth and become idolaters instead. Let's look at Romans 1, 18 through 25. Paul's going to begin this whole argument about the gospel by talking about how God has put within every human being that conscience, if you will, that awareness that, that he's created them. Okay? Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And let's just stop right there. What does it mean to suppress? They push it down. What are they pushing down there? The truth. Okay? So they're pushing down truth. What happens when you push down truth? What does the beginning of the verse say? 
God's wrath is coming to those who suppress truth. They're pushing it down. Okay? Now, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So what's Paul saying there? How has God made His his presence known in the world since creation? His creation. Every culture worships something. What do they worship? Even way back, the moon, the sun, the stars, an animal. God has made himself known just in creation. You can look up at the stars in the sky and look at the Milky Way, and you know deep in your heart that somebody put it there, and it wasn't you, and that one that put it there is bigger than you. And there's, You may not know that his name is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but you know there is a Creator. There's some, something greater out there. Now, what does an atheist do? What's an atheist say? There is no God. Can an atheist truly be honest? Okay. Atheists don't believe in God. God doesn't believe in atheists. There's no such thing as an atheist. What an atheist is doing is saying, I know deep in my heart there's a God, but I'm refusing to acknowledge that truth, so I'm going to push it down as far as I can so that I don't have to come face to face with the fact that there is a God. And when things go bad, I'm going to blame God for it, even though I don't believe he exists. So when bad things happen in the world, let's just blame God. But how can you blame God as an atheist? There is no God. Inconsistencies. So God has made it known. But notice what Paul says. They are without excuse. Just because... They don't recognize that God is God. Does that still get them off the hook? They're still accountable. They're still sinners. Does a person, here's a trick question. Does a person go to hell primarily because they refuse to accept Christ or because they're sinners? Which is the primary one? wrong because if it's because they don't accept christ what about people that have never had the chance to accept christ do they go to heaven no they go you go to hell because of sin now yes you go to hell because you refuse to accept christ but there are people all over the world that have not had the opportunity to accept christ and if we say they go to heaven then somehow there's two ways of salvation What sends us to hell is sin and guilt, not necessarily not having a missionary go to us. That's why it's so important that we send missionaries. Why do you think we've adopted an unreached people group? Because we believe if somebody doesn't get to them with the gospel, they're going to hell. If they're okay and they go to hell because you reject Jesus, what's the worst thing we can do for them? Send a missionary to tell them about Jesus. Because once they hear about Jesus, they're accountable. Okay, so let's just stop all missions right now and not do any more because if we start telling people there's Jesus, then they're going to be accountable for rejecting him. Well, they're accountable already, whether they hear about him or not, because of sin. And Romans here teaches that. And here's what happens. When you suppress truth, look what what happens. 
Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Circle that word exchanged. What did they exchange? What does it mean? To, first of all, what does it mean to exchange? Trade. Switch. Okay, so what, what's over on this side? Over here you have God's glory. You have worship. You have honoring God. What do sinners exchange all of that for? What's he say? Images, idols. And they're images of what? God's creation. As opposed to worshiping the creator, they exchange it for worshiping creation. Whether that's a bird, a reptile, a statue, a person, money, anything. So part of this exchange also involves a suppression. So you're, ex- you're suppressing truth and you're exchanging truth and what pops up in its place is idolatry. So at the core of man's problem is what? We are idolaters. The core problem in, of humanity is we fail to give God glory and worship and honor Him as Creator. We've exchanged that glory of God We've suppressed that truth about God for idols, images of creation. Now keep going down in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth. There's that word exchanged again. The tr- this time it's the, the truth, not exchanged the glory, but exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So one of the fundamental issues of life that, that's true to all cultures and all humans is that every single person is born knowing there's God, but exchanging that knowledge, exchanging that truth, suppressing that truth, and creating idols. Now before you say, well, there's no idols in America. <laughs> we have idols in America, do we not? Now, it's not like India where you can actually see them. Like you can go into a person's home and see idols or you can see temples with idols and you, can, you can't get off the plane without seeing idols in the airport. I mean, they're all over the place. What are some idols that, what are some idols that we have exchanged the glory of God for in America? Okay, television, wealth, self, celebrity. We could spend all night naming them, can't we? At the fundamental issue of all idolatry, what is it? It's a failure to worship the Creator and instead worshiping His creation, even if that creation's yourself. It's the biggest slap of, in God's face. You're basically saying, I'm denying my Creator, I'm suppressing the truth about my Creator, I'm exchanging the glory of my Creator, and I'd rather have the stuff He's created than Him. And the most important thing is me. And as John Piper says, there's not going to be any mirrors in heaven. 
Thank goodness for some of us. <laughs> Meaning when we get to heaven, we're not going to be looking at ourselves. We're going to be looking at Jesus. Okay, so the fundamental problem, Paul starts out in Romans with the fundamental problem of humanity, all humanity. He hasn't talked about Jew or Gentile. He hasn't made a distinction yet. He's saying fundamental to humanity, regardless of your culture, regardless of, of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or any nationality, your biggest issue being born is that you are born an idolater. And that makes you guilty. That makes you accountable. Okay? Now, if that's not bad enough, let's go to number four. And by the way, chapters one, two, and three are really bad news. Paul lays it down thick, the bad news, before he gets to the good news. But we've got to deal with the bad news before we can experience the sweetness of the good news. So here's number four. There is a day of judgment coming for all sinners who rebel against God. Let's go to chapter two. Again, we're not going verse by verse through Romans. I'm just taking you through some major themes these gospel declarations or these teachings about salvation. So let's look at Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to keep on sinning, right? Is that what it says? No. No, it says God's kindness. Just making sure you're paying attention. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But... Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And how more clear can you get? Paul says, if you continue in sin, if you continue to seek self, if you continue to suppress this truth, if you continue to live in unrighteousness, if you don't repent, he says there's a day of wrath and fury and judgment. It's very clear. A day of wrath and fury and judgment. Now, you can go to Revelation and see what that looks like. He doesn't unpack exactly what that looks like in visual pictures the way John does in the book of Revelation. Paul just states it more in a proposition. There's going to be a day of judgment for all those who rebel against God. So this starts out really bad, doesn't it? We're idolaters. We're accountable. We're guilty. If you continue in that, there's a day of wrath and judgment and fury coming. Wow. That's very encouraging. Let's keep going and get more encouraging. Bad news first here. Number five. If we didn't get it by now, Paul says it again. Okay? All humanity is guilty in sin and is thereby helpless and hopeless and accountable before God. Those are my two favorite terms to use I like to use this, and you'll hear me say this sometimes on Sunday mornings on my sermons. We are helpless and hopeless without Christ. What does helpless mean? We can't do anything. What does hopeless mean? There's no hope, okay? What does accountable mean? We have to answer, yeah, okay. So we're hopeless, helpless, and accountable. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, 10 through 19. And basically, Paul kind of lays it on thick on the Gentiles, and then he goes, Jews, just in case you were thinking I'm talking to the Gentiles, let me talk to you for a little while. 
So he talks to the Jews for a little while. Then in chapter 3, he's like, oh, by the way, just in case you didn't get it, I'm, now I'm talking to both Jews and Gentiles. In case you like, don't have a category for who you are, I'm going to include everybody. So let's pick up in, in chapter 3, verse 10. Let's go back to verse 9, actually. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's probably the most comprehensive statement about the total depravity of man and the universality of that sin. We're all under sin. We're not righteous. We don't understand. We don't seek. We turn aside. We become worthless. We don't do good. We have things come out of our mouth that are ungodly. We curse people. Our feet are swift to follow into sin. We're, we're, we're agitated. We're fighters. And look at verse 18. There's really no fear of God. I think that just kind of summarizes it all. There's no fear of God. Do we live in a culture that fears God? If we did, it would be a whole lot different. Now, Let's not talk about the big bad world out there. Let's talk about the church world. Do we live in a church culture where there's a fear of God? There's a fine, there's a balance we got we got to keep here, okay? As Christians, we have unlimited access to the throne of God, and we should never be scared of God because he's our father. Okay? He's our loving father. But I think a danger that we can have, and I think I see the danger maybe in our culture, is that you can be so buddy-buddy with God that you lose the majesty and the transcendence and the awe. And I think there needs to be both. He is approachable through Jesus. We can come to His throne. We can call Him Daddy. But at the same time, He's, he's powerful and He's amazing and He's, he's awful. As the, awful doesn't... Like awful, the old word awful... Full of awe. We just have changed it to awesome because awful sounds bad. He's awesome. He's, he's some awe. I like awful. He's full of awe, not some awe. Awesome, some awe, awful, full of awe. But in our world, when we say awful, it means, oh, he's awful. So we say he's awesome. So that's how words change in the English language. Or he's bad. Or he's bad, <laughs> meaning he's good. <laughs> or he's deaf. I mean, there's even like things like that, you know. Not that God can't cure, but he's... God's cool. Okay? Now, just in case you don't fit this category, what does Paul say in verse 19? I mean, look at verse 19. Every mouth can be stopped. Now, think about this. Every mouth may be stopped. On the day of judgment, when you stand before God, if you're not a Christian, is anything going to be able to come out of your mouth to justify your actions? Your mouth's going to be stopped. 
you won't have any defense. And it says the whole world will be held accountable to God. So we are helpless, we're hopeless, and we're accountable to God. Now, some people at this point might think, okay, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I'm accountable. I recognize my problem. I'm a sinner. I'm bad. I don't seek God. I do bad things. The answer then must lie in something I must do in order to rid myself of that. And so a lot of people think the answer is what? Good works or religion. So here's number six. Salvation from sin and guilt can in no way be achieved or earned through good works, obedience to the Ten Commandments, or any other human means of merit. We see this in Romans 3.20. So here we, we're starting to get to how some people might think. So Paul's built his case. Okay, he was a good lawyer. We're all accountable. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. We're all under God's wrath. Boom, boom, boom. And then he's thinking, okay, there may be some people that say, okay, I get that. I don't object, but here's the answer to how we solve that problem. Let's do some type of religious works to atone for our own sin. And Paul stops that in verse 20 and says, okay, I'm going to answer that objection. I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I see it coming down the track, and I'm going to hit it off at the pass. So look what he says at verse, verse 20 of chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's two parts to that verse. We're going to talk about the second part later. What's Paul saying? You can't be justified. You can't be in the right. You can't solve the problem by works of the law, by, by works, by doing good, by obedience, anything that you do. But here's the problem. Well, let me ask you before I put number seven up there. If you can't be right by doing works of the law, does that mean that God lowers the standards of His law to make it easier? Is God just? Does God have to punish sin? Does God have to deal with sin? Yes, He does. So here's number seven. Even though we cannot earn this right standing with God, He still requires righteousness in order to enter heaven. Now, this is verse 321. But now, you see the change Paul uses there in verse 21? But now. Okay, for the past three and a half chapters, I've been giving bad news. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So what's God saying there? God is going to show a righteousness. God is going to act justly. God's going to do right, but it's not going to come through the law, even though the law was pointing to it. The law and the prophets... The Old Testament 
bore witness to what God was going to do. So God's going to uphold his justice. God's going to uphold his holiness. God's not going to lower the bar on his holiness. He's still going to do right. The question is, how is he going to do it? How's God going to punish sin and be holy? Is he going to make you be punished for it, or is he going to punish somebody else for it? And the answer is, he's going to punish Jesus instead of us. So this is where we get to number eight. Number eight. This is the heart of the gospel. God solved the problem of our inability to produce this righteousness by, number one, punishing our sin in Jesus, and number two, granting us this righteousness through faith. Now let's... We're going we're gonna to read this. I'm kind of just throwing it out there as far as Jesus took our punishment and God's going to, as a gift of grace, give us this righteousness. Okay? And here's number nine. Salvation is from first to last a free gift of grace to those who believe in Jesus alone. So probably my, my favorite part of Romans, the heart of the gospel, I think. If I could pick just some passages of Scripture that really are the heart of the gospel, Romans 3, 22 through 26. So let's read this together. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Now let's just stop there in verse 23. We, we hear this all the time, don't we? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses that terminology? What would you think he would have said? For all have sinned and broken God's law. Would there be anything wrong with that statement? No. For all have sinned and try to do good works. What does he say there? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How did Paul start this whole argument? What's the, what's the fundamental problem with humans? We've exchanged the glory and worship of God for idolaters. So at the heart of sin is a failure to glorify God, a failure to worship God, a failure to worship our Creator. And so Paul succinctly says, yes, sin is breaking the law. Yes, sin is being an idolater. Yes, sin is, you know, no one seeks God, all become worthless. But at, fundamentally, sin is not giving glory to God, exchanging that glory for the lie of worshiping something else. But look at verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot of stuff there. You've got redemption, justification, propitiation, and 
grace. It's a free gift of grace. Verse 24, they're justified by His grace as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So how are we saved? Very clearly. Are we saved by works? No, we are saved. If we were saved by works, what would we be able to do? Step in foot in heaven and say, I earned this, I did this, I boasted, I, I, I contributed something to this. The only thing you contribute to this equation is what? Your sin. And even the faith that you have to believe is not your own. It's a gift of God. The salvation is a gift. The grace is a gift. The faith is Everything about your salvation is a gift of God, not the result of works. Titus also says it this way in Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not... Why did He save us? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a lot in that passage of Scripture too. Now, let's just talk about some words that show up here. Verse 24 and are justified by His grace by, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Some of these things I haven't put in the notes, so I'm just going to start writing these on the board as they come to my mind as we go through Romans. So, redemption. It's a biblical word. Redemption. It, the root word in English is redeem. Sometimes in Greek, you may see the word ransom as well. So, redemption. It's a very important biblical term. It doesn't just show up here in Romans. It actually goes all the way back to Exodus. The whole book of Exodus is about redemption. Okay? So, you guys tell me, what happens? How does Exodus start? What's the, what's the condition of the Israelites? They're what? In slavery, right? They're in bondage to cruel taskmasters and they cry out to God and God sends Moses as a deliverer and God basically institutes the Passover. What was the Passover? Go get a lamb, a spotless lamb. Take that lamb into your home for 14 days, the spotless lamb, pure spotless lamb. On the 14th day at twilight, you will kill the spotless lamb. You will put blood on the doorpost and lintel of your house. You will splatter it with blood. You will stay in the confines of the house. You don't want to go out of the house. You stay under the protection of that blood. And once the angel of death passes over the camp, passes over the city, if there's no blood, then he's going to kill the firstborn. If there's blood, he will pass over. And it was on that night that what happened? Pharaoh finally let the people go. They were released from slavery, were they not? By means of the blood of a substitute, the lamb. 
And that night they escaped and crossed the Red Sea. So in the Old Testament, when it talks about redemption, it's God's sovereign action in releasing Israel from slavery by means of the blood of the Lamb. Now, when we come to the New Testament, it's a no-brainer, right? When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, what does redemption mean? It means that we're released from spiritual slavery by means of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So, when you see that word redemption in the Bible, you should, it should always trigger an image in your mind. When you see the word redemption in the Bible, it should trigger two images in mind. It should always trigger the Exodus, the Passover, and it should always trigger in your mind spiritual slavery and being set free from slavery, from bondage. Okay, that, that's what the word means, redemption. It was even in, it was even in the, the secular word used in that culture to, to buy and sell slaves out of slavery. You would redeem them. You'd pay a ransom price to redeem them. Now, there's another big word in that passage of Scripture besides redemption. What's the other big word? Propitiation. That word. So here's number next. What's our next number? Number 10. In order to punish our sin, Jesus served as our substitute bearing God's righteous wrath and justice. That's what propitiation means. Propitiation means that Jesus dies as a substitute, but not just a substitute, but a substitute who actually takes the punishment we deserve. He took it in our place. He paid the guilt. He paid the fine. He paid the penalty. He took the punishment. He took the justice. He took God's... God has to punish sin. So the way that God punished sin was by having all of that righteous justice come down upon Jesus in our place so that we would not experience that righteous justice. Let me ask you a question. I don't know the answer to it, but it's a good, it's a good theor- theoretical question. What is worse, Jesus Christ bearing all of God's wrath on the cross in that concentrated moment or eternity in hell? I don't know if the Bible answers that question, but if you think about hell being God's eternal justice forever, what Jesus experienced in those few short minutes was nothing short of the pain of, of hell. Now, I'm not saying Jesus went to hell. Um, I don't believe he did. But I think what he experienced there in those moments on the cross was some severe, severe spiritual anguish because what was he bearing in his body? Sins. Sins. In thought, word, and deed. Did it separate him from God when he It did not separate him in the sense that Jesus had somehow ceased to be God. Okay. He's still God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, while he's on the cross. 
And he still said, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he still had a relationship with the Father. What it was was, this is kind of a difficult concept, and we'll talk about this if we get to it tonight. It's called imputation. (laughs) What that means is, Jesus, it's, it's like this. Think about an account, like a bank account. If somebody makes a deposit in an account, you, you, you take that money in. Okay, Jesus took our sin in. It was credited to him. Okay, It was our sin, not his, but he took it into his account. Okay, So in those moments when he had that sin, our sin, taken to his account, when God looked down upon him, what did God see? It was still Jesus, but he saw our sins being credited to Jesus. And so based upon that, God had to punish it. God had to punish that sin. So I don't know if he was separated, but he was bearing God's justice for our sins, not his own. Does that, does that make sense, Jenny? Or is that, it's kind of a deep concept. Well, some people say God turned his face. The Bible really doesn't say God turned his face. It just said Jesus just, he felt abandoned because at that moment he was being treated as the worst of sinners, even though he had never sinned, because he was taking on our sin. Okay. Now, there's some deep thoughts. Okay. So you've got, now, the interesting thing here is that Notice what um, verse 26 says. It's important. It was to show his righteousness. It was to show his righteousness. What, what does righteousness mean? God, God's justice. That God was doing the right thing. What's the right thing for God to do? What's the right thing for God to do? This is a trick question. What's the right thing for God to do to humans? Punish everybody. Isn't that not the just thing for God to do? If God were to be absolutely just, if God were to be absolutely just and he were to mete out justice according to crime, according to guilt, what would God do? He would have to annihilate everybody. Okay? Okay, so the question then becomes, all right, if Jesus died on the cross, then how can God still be just? Because, you know, people are, people are getting off from their sins. The question is, God does two things. He's both the just and the justifier in the sense that God can be at the same time just by doing what? He punishes sin. Does sin not go unpunished? Does God deal with sin? How does he deal with it? In Jesus. At the same time, he's the justifier in the sense that because Jesus was punished, he can clear our record. So it, does know, it doesn't mean God's unjust. It doesn't mean God doesn't do the right thing. In the death of cross, Jesus or God does everything right. He still punishes sin, and we still get off, and nobody can say God did anything wrong. As a matter of fact, what God should have done was to punish us all, but instead he punished Jesus in our place. So God is both the just and the justifier. Okay? Number 11. When we place our trust in Christ for salvation, 
God credits our sin to Jesus. So it goes, our sin goes out of us to Jesus one way. And coming back to us, he credits his perfect record to us so that we can be declared not guilty. Now, there's about three places where we see this. So let's go into Romans chapter 4, verse 4. I think verse 4 is very important about how salvation comes. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. What's Paul saying there? You work, you get paid. Right. Because what did you do? You earned it. How many of you are going to go to your boss tomorrow and say, hey, I'll just work today for free? I'll work all the hours, but you don't need to pay me. I'm just going to work for free today. Does anybody do that? No, when you go to work, either you punch a time card or whatever, however you do it, you go to work and you get paid based upon what you worked, right? Because it's due you. You did the work. You earned it. It's coming back to you as payment, a paycheck. That makes sense, right? So we would think automatically, if that's the way it works in life, wouldn't we think that's the same thing with salvation? People would think that. Okay, if I do something for God, if I work for God, if I, if I do some ritual, if I do something religious, then God is obligated to pay me in salvation, right? The way it works, right? You work, you get something back. You work for salvation, you get something back. Paul says, no, that's not how it works. Now, it may help, that may work how it works in the work world, but that's not how it works in the salvation world. Look at verse 5. To the one who does not work, but what? Believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what's the one requirement to be saved? Faith. Believe. Faith alone. It's not by working. It's not by works. It's by faith alone. And when you trust in Christ, look what happens. He justifies the ungodly. Now, we'll talk about what that means here real quick. Go to, go to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul has used this other term, justify, justification. Okay, so we got redemption, propitiation, justification. Justification, Romans 5, um, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access or entrance by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have been justified by faith. Paul addresses this term justification um, by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. You hear this term a lot in the Bible, justified. What does it mean? Some of you have seen this. Some of you have not. So if you've seen this, it's a refresher. If you've not, this may be new. I'm going to draw on the board the best way I can describe what justification looks like. So if you, you may want to draw this or you may not understand after it's all over what I'm explaining. This term justification in the Bible has really two meanings. One set of meanings is its courtroom language i.e. It's the, it's the language of a judge or a courtroom, acquittals, legal standing, um, punishments and, and meaning out justice, things that happen in a courtroom. 
The other term it's used is it's a banking term. Credits and debits, things going in and out of accounts. So here's what I want you to think about. This is you on one side of the ledger. Okay, so this is a banking term. This is you on one side of the ledger, and this is Jesus on the other side of the ledger. I'm not an accountant, but I do know that there's, you know, there, there's different sides of the ledger. Okay? Things are going in and things are going out. So God, the Father, as the judge in the courtroom, when he looks down upon your life as the judge of the courtroom, this is, you, you don't have Christ in your life yet. This is you in Romans 1 through 3. What does God see? Dead, guilty, oh, debt, guilty. Okay, so if this is a banking terminology, if, this is, if, if your life was a bank account, what would your balance be? Negative. Can we make up a word? Can we make up a gazillion? You have a negative gazillion debt of sin. You have major sin. Okay? You have a lot of sin. And so when God looks at your life, he says, okay, you have a negative balance. Okay, can a negative balance do anything for you? Can you contribute to your balance by doing things positive? The Roman Catholics think you can. But can you really do anything to get yourself out of spiritual debt? No. So when you believe in Jesus, here's what happens. That whole debt transfers or credits or debits, however you want to use the word, um, it transfers out of your account and it goes to Jesus. So what does Jesus then do? What does he do? He takes all of your debt. He takes all of your sin. He assumes all of that debt. How does it go out of your account? How does the transfer happen? Faith. When you exercise faith in Jesus at that moment, when you trust Him for salvation, that debt immediately goes out of your account and it goes into Jesus' account. So Jesus takes your full debt. Now, that's great news, right? Because what's your balance? It's what? Zero. Okay, your balance is zero. Is that still enough to get you into heaven? Now, it puts you back at zero, but you need something positive in order to get into heaven. Okay? Because God requires positive righteousness for you to be in heaven. You can't just be zero. Question is, can you contribute to that positive balance? No, you can't. You're a sinner. So a transfer goes back the other way. Jesus' perfect record, so his perfect record his perfect life, his perfect obedience, that record transfers into your account. And it, again, it comes by faith. And so now, what is your account? It's Jesus. It's Jesus' record. That's a good record, isn't it? So now when the judge looks down upon your life after you've trusted Christ for salvation, what does he see? No more debt, sin, and the positive record of Jesus. And based upon that, what can the judge pronounce now? He can make a huge pronouncement upon your life. What can he say? Not guilty. That's where Romans 8.1 comes in. So let's look at Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 is the mirror image of Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1 explains justification. Romans 8.1 explains the result of justification. So Romans 8.1. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is condemnation? Guilt. There's no guilt. There's no punishment. There's no justice. The the demands for justice have been satisfied by Jesus. What's the one thing that makes this work? Faith. Faith alone. There's no works involved in this at all. It's simple faith. And so justification, guys, this is a one-time event. You don't experience degrees of justification in your life. Once, Once it happens, it happens. It's a permanent standing. You're permanently not guilty. It's a one-time transaction once and for all, and it can never be taken away from you. So you never lose your salvation. You never lose your justification. It's something that God does because it didn't even begin with you in the first place. Whose record are we talking about? Jesus's. And once Jesus's record is trans, this word can be imputed, transferred, credited, reckoned, whatever banking term makes sense to you, it's all the same. There's this double This double, it's called double imputation is what the theological term is. Double imputation or double credit. Sin goes out of your account into Jesus. His perfect record goes out of Christ into you. So it goes both ways so that you can be declared not guilty. And then notice what Romans 5.1 says. Let's go back to Romans 5.1. Not only is there no condemnation, Romans 8.1, but notice what Romans 5.1 says. Okay, so I explained to you justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's what I just explained to you. Justified by faith, your sin's been taken out of your account. Christ's righteousness has been put into your account. What does Paul say happens as a result of that? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, look at verse 2. Through Him, we've also obtained what? Access. Really, the Greek word really means you've been ushered into His presence. You've been given an audience. It's like going before a king. That you could, like, it'd be like, I, can anybody walk up to the White House today and just walk in? Say, here are you. You have to have a special invitation. The, the imagery here is that Christ has, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, granted us the special invitation right into the very throne of God where we can approach God directly as our Father, have peace with him, have access into this grace in which we stand. We stand in it, meaning it's permanent. And what should that bring? We rejoice. It brings joy. So the result of justification is joy and peace and access and, not be, and being not guilty. But not only that, there's another image. So we've talked about redemption, right? What, what should trigger your mind when you think about redemption? Slavery. At the Exodus, okay? Propitiation, what image should you think about with propitiation? Jesus takes God's punishment, God's, God's justice. When you think of justification, what should you be thinking about? This whole image of our sins going out and Christ's righteousness coming in and being not guilty. But there's another image. Number 12, through Jesus' death on the cross, He has reconciled us to the Father and saved us from His wrath. There's another term there, reconciliation. So, you know, we've got reconciliation that really comes from the term reconcile, to bring back together, to, 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 not, to not be at odds, to not be at war. So let's look at Romans 5, 6-11. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is verse 8. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood. Now, justified by his blood, what is that? That whole bank account thing we just talked about. Much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God, there's the propitiation piece. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He he says it three times, reconciled, reconciliation. It means that we've gone from being God's enemy to God's friend. We've, been go- we've gone from being outsiders to insiders. We've been reconciled. We've been brought into a right relationship. We've been brought into a peaceful relationship. We've been saved from His wrath. We've been saved from bondage. We've been saved from sin. We've been saved from His justice. We've been saved from all of these things, from guilt, and now we've been reconciled to Christ. Now, why Paul does this here, I don't know. I mean, if, if you're thinking logically, it seems like he would have addressed this earlier. But he's going to bring back the sin issue again. And maybe he's doing it for us just to be reminded that, uh, yeah, we're sinners and we, we, need, we need salvation. So here's number um, 13. Yeah, I just kept going. I couldn't. Here's number 13, in case we didn't get it in chapters 1 through 3. Every single person has inherited sin, guilt, and death from Adam and desperately needs salvation. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this, but we see this in Romans um, 5, 12, and then 18 through 21. We talked about this just a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but let's just read it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, being Adam, And death reigned through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Adam brought sin into the world, therefore every single person has inherited that sin from Adam, has inherited that death. You go down to verse 18, Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So, it goes back to the answer to the question of how did sin get in the world? It got in the world through Adam. And every single one of us has inherited that sin from Adam. And so we're born guilty. We're born in Adam. Now, here's an interesting thing that is helpful. Number 14. The law of God, i.e. the Ten Commandments, serves to make us aware of sin and to accuse our consciousness that we are guilty and accountable. What's the purpose of the law? There's three purposes of the law. I'll explain that in just a moment, but let's read Romans 7, 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What's the purpose of the law? To know what's wrong, to have a label for your sin. There are three uses of the law. So let's talk about the law for a moment. And when I say law, I'm just going to codify it by big, big ticket item, the Ten Commandments. Now, let's do a little exercise here. Let's see if we can list the Ten Commandments without looking. I'm not going to tell you where it is. So what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make any image or idols. Number three, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, do not murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not bear false witness. And number 10, do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Okay? So the purpose of the law that God has given in the world serves three purposes. Number one, first and foremost... It's basically been given to curb anarchy and to control society, <laughs> okay? Even, now some countries are lawless, like you think of some African countries where there's like no law. But in our culture in the West, which has borrowed from the Judeo-Christian heritage, law is put there to make sure that people don't, kill each other or steal from each other or do crazy things. Um, almost all cultures have some form of the Ten Commandments, do they not? Most cultures, you're going to get in trouble if you kill somebody. You're going to get in trouble if you steal from somebody. You're going to get in trouble if you commit adultery. You're, you're going to get, I mean, laws are there just to make sure society functions, okay? But the second use of the law is what Paul is addressing here. The second use of the law is to make you aware of sin, So, I've done this before, but we'll do it again. Let's say I go up to Dawn. She's not a believer. And I say, Dawn, let's, let's talk for a little bit, and I'm going to have a conversation with you. Do you think you're a pretty good person? And Dawn would say, yeah, yeah she's pretty good. <laughs> Compared to so-and-so down the street, I'm pretty good. Okay, well, do you mind, Dawn, if I ask you a few questions about how good you are? Sure. sure. Okay, she's playing along pretty good. Um, <laughs> Dawn, have you ever told a lie? Yes. Yeah, she's told a lie. Okay, what does that make you? A liar. A liar. Okay. <laughs> Don, have you ever stolen anything, even if it was small? Yeah. yeah. What does that make you? A thief. A thief. Okay. Don, have you ever disobeyed your parents? Okay. You snuck out when you were a kid or something. Okay. Have you ever lusted in your heart after somebody that wasn't your spouse or? Yeah. yeah. So you've com- <laughs> Jesus calls that adultery, and Jesus calls that adultery in your heart. Okay. So. Let me just ask you a question. You've admitted, I haven't, said, I haven't put words in your mouth, you just admitted that you're a liar, a thief, an adulterer, and disobedient to your parents. Have you ever, have you ever like, cussed and bla- used God's name in vain or use it as a cuss word? No, probably not. Okay, good. Okay. So, by your own admission, Don, you're a liar, a thief, and an adulterer at heart. If God were to judge you based upon the Ten Commandments, because these are violations of the Ten Commandments, do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? If he were just to judge you simply on the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? Guilty. You'd be guilty. Okay. 
If you're guilty, does that mean you go to heaven or hell? I guess hell. That's the sticking point for most people, okay? Because here's what's happened. You get to that last question, where should, do you deserve to go to heaven or hell? They're like, well, wait a minute. If I say hell, that's a big thing. But if they say hell, then you back up and say, no, wait a minute, you just admitted you're guilty. You're guilty of breaking me. So the purpose of the law is to awaken our conscience and show us that we truly have sinned against God. And what is it supposed to lead us to? It's supposed to lead us to brokenness, to helplessness, to realize that I'm guilty, I'm a sinner. Even if I try to do good things, I can never do enough good. This is driving me to my knees to find salvation in Jesus. So, So the purpose really of the law, guys, is to make you aware of sin, to drive you to Jesus. So sometimes we shouldn't, shouldn't short-circuit the use of the law when we do evangelism or when, we, when I preach or when we talk to people. Good probing questions to get people to wrestle with sin. That's what happened in India. I was in this village, and I started... Oh, here's the story. We went to this village. I'll tell you the long story about it. We went to this village um, two years ago, um, the first time Dave and Jan went and the rest of the team. And um, they had dirty water in their well. And so we as Emmanuel had actually sent money to purchase a new well. And so we, they had a new well and they had clean drinking water. And so we went back to, to gather the whole village and pray over the well. And so no believers at all in that village. And so they gathered, I preached the gospel. Well, we came back last week, I guess it was a week ago today. I was in this village and the guy's like, I remember you coming, but I don't remember what you said. And I said, well, do you think I can share again? Um, tell me about, you know, who you worship. Well, I worship this mountain. And my brother worships that mountain, and my cousin worships that mountain. But we all worship the rocks on the mountains. I said, okay. So I was just him personally. And then Rangarajji, then, let's get everybody here together. So we get the whole village there. So about 40 people are all sitting around. And so I start. I said, let me tell you about the one true God who's over all the mountains, who's over all the rocks, who created all the mountains and the, and the mountains all over the world. They're like, oh, I want to hear about this God. And so I had to start all the way back with creation, started with Adam and Eve, talked about how Adam and Eve had a relationship with this one true God, but how a snake entered into the garden and tempted, you know, got the whole thing. And then started talking about sin. And I said, it's just like that well that you guys had. It was really dirty down in, until, some, until we got a new well that cleaned it. That's the same thing with your hearts. Your hearts are dirty. Your hearts are sinful. You and I have dirty, sinful hearts. And they got really angry. We are not sinners. Why are you telling us you're, we're sinners? We don't, we don't sin. And so, I, and then, so David's like, camp out here. You've got to camp out here. They're struggling with sin. Don't move on. Just camp out here. So um, what I did was I, I started saying, I started going through these things. I said, do you ever lie? Do you ever steal? Do you ever fight? And they were like kind of nodding their heads. And I said, well, that means you're sinners. And they were like, and so David's like, they don't have an answer to what you're telling them. They're just in denial that they're sinners. And so sometimes people are in denial when they're faced with sin because they're having to wrestle with the fact that they're a sinner. And the law puts it in concrete things. Because when you tell somebody you're a sinner, sometimes they can just go over their head like, well, I, you know, compared to everybody else, I'm not that bad. What the law does is it gives categories and labels to make it tangible so that they can actually say, okay, wow, I've, I've committed this particular sin. That makes me this. Then their conscience begins to struggle. Okay, the third use of the law is after we're a Christian, it's just our rule for living. Does anybody here want to say we're not bound by the Ten Commandments anymore once we become a Christian? So go commit adultery all you want. Go kill all you want. Go. No, the law is, 
It's now a rule for living, and the only way we can obey it is through the Holy Spirit, but we don't obey it in order to get saved. We obey it as a result of salvation in order to walk in, you know, in, in fellowship with God. Okay? All right, let's talk about, and this, this is kind of where I was hoping to stop tonight, which is good. Um, yes, sir. Oh, curb your oh curb anarchy, anarchy. I'm sorry. To, yeah, to to stop to curb anarchy or basically to control so that we don't have chaotic anarchy in societies. It's basically to control society. Mm-hmm. Okay, one of the beautiful things about the gospel too is we've talked a lot about the Father. We've talked a lot about Jesus, but in the in the in Romans, Paul does address. Um, here's number fifteen. The Father has given us the precious gift of His Spirit to live inside us, guaranteeing our salvation and granting us the power to live the Christian life. Um, let's go back to Romans 5.5. 5. And Romans 5.5 5 says, um, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So how do we experience God's love? through the Holy Spirit who's been generously poured into our hearts. So the Holy Spirit's been given to us to live in our hearts, been given to us generously. And then go over to chapter um, 8, verses 15 through 17. Chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we've got the Holy Spirit that has adopted us into God's family. We can cry out, Abba, Father. Okay. Now, here's where we're going to spend probably the next couple of weeks, but I want to give it to you in number 16. But number 16 has a, like 10 parts. Okay, so 16, it's like a Puritan sermon. Point number 16, sub-point 24, no. Um, number 16, God has sovereignly put together an order to our salvation. What do I mean by an order of salvation? Let's go to Romans 8, 29 and 30. And over the next few weeks, or maybe we'll finish it all next week, we're going to talk about what's called the order of salvation. Um, so Romans eight twenty nine and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay. Now, when we say order of salvation, I'm going I'm to give you the ten, the, ten, the ten aspects of salvation. When we say the order of salvation... Obviously, God does these things in his, um, like from his perspective, they're not really done in order. And there's kind of, it's not like, like this real strict um, ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump. What we're saying is, according to the teaching of Scripture, we see either sequences, some simultaneous, of how the Christian life works in our salvation. So let me give you all ten of these, and then we're going to look at these over the next week or two. And there's some debate about the order, but I'm going to give you my order, and you can, you can agree, disagree with me. Um, the, first, the first one would be what we would call election or predestination 
this took place in eternity past before any of us were even born. It's God's, God's choosing. Okay? Then there's what's called calling, where God calls us when we hear the gospel preached. How many of you, how many of you got saved without hearing the gospel? Somebody had to preach it to you, right? So there's a calling of the gospel that goes out. You've got to hear it. But there's also what's called the effectual call where the Holy Spirit actually makes it come alive to you. Okay? Then there's regeneration. Regeneration is when the Holy Spirit comes and invades your dead heart and gives you new life, causes you to be born again, raises you to spiritual life. Then there's repentance and faith what we would call conversion. There's that point in time where you actually repent of your sins and you believe in Jesus. You personally put your faith in Christ. You trust Him. You accept Him, whatever word you want to use. Then once that happens, we talked about this, there's justification. Then there's adoption. We're adopted into God's family. Then there's what's called um, sanctification. Sanctification is this big, huge category of what's happening right now. Sanctification is, okay, how you live your life as a saved person, the, the progressive growth. Okay. Then there's what's called perseverance. In other words, either until Christ comes back or you die, you stay in the faith. God ensures that you persevere to the end. You, you're, you're eternally secure. Then there's death, the final enemy. And then there's what's called glorification, which is the final state where you receive your new body, the resurrected body, and you live forever in the new heaven and the new earth with Christ personally. Okay? Now, our experience of some of these may seem like, for example, this all right here, the, like number three, four, two, three, four, and five may feel simultaneous to us. Okay? Because all we know experientially is that we heard the gospel and we believed. We're not sitting there, like when it happens, we're not thinking, okay, right now I'm being regenerated. And then I'm being, you know, because you don't have those categories. All you're, all you're saying is, hey, I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to hell. I know I need Jesus. This makes sense. I'm believing in him. Okay. What you don't know is that God has done a prior work to get you to that point, And God has regenerated you and given you the, the gifts of repentance and faith. And you're coming in. So you may not know all these categories experientially, but the Bible seems to put together some kind of order to how we're saved. And so what I want us to do is to, is to look at each of these, not in major detail, but just to kind of say, here's the big umbrella. The big umbrella is salvation. Under the big umbrella of salvation, there are different aspects of salvation that are distinctly different. Justification is different than regeneration. They're two different things, even though they're part of our salvation. Predestination and election is different than adoption, even though they're related sanctification is definitely different than justification, but they're related, okay? Glorification means final salvation, but it's, it's totally different, but it's related. So when we say salvation, big ticket, big picture, underneath that, there's all the different aspects of what it means to be saved, okay? And what we're going to do is we look at these, we're going to kind of compare, especially Roman Catholicism to this, because I think it's a big one in our culture that... Um, that kind of gets some of these wonky, especially justification and regeneration um, in the Roman Catholic view. And I think we may bring in Mormonism and some other things, even though we've kind of already looked at that. But I wanted to show you what the Bible teaches about our salvation.